with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everybody. This is Jonathan Strickland with Tech Stuff. Today, I have a very special guest, someone that I've been looking forward to having on the show, Troy Benjamin, who is an author extraordinaire and uh, knows all sorts of things about geeky stuff. I could be quizzing him about Iron Man right now or talking about the intricacies of S.H.I.E.L.D., but today, we're going to look at a particularly spooky topic the tech of Ghostbusters because we have the Ghostbusters Ectomobile Owner's Workshop Manual, a book that uh, I have a, had a chance to look at and have enjoyed thoroughly. Mr. Benjamin, welcome to Tech Stuff. Hello, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. Man, That's I, now I hear that that title is such a mouthful, the Ghostbusters Ectomobile Owner's Workshop. We should have really come up with an acronym or something there. In true Shield fashion, we should have come up with something shorter. <laughs> I I love that you know in the on the the cover that I have it has the all the different uh, designations for all the different ectomobiles as well. So it's so yes, it's even yes. more complex than that. Uh, I love it because you look at this. And just from the look of it, it looks like a workshop manual. You know, it has that appearance. You got the nice, uh, uh, diagram of the Ecto-1, the classic Ecto-1 on the cover. And, uh, before we jump into how this book came about and, and the research you did, just from a, a casual perspective, uh, guys, this is a book that's got tons of illustrations and photographs from the films, it's got uh, lots of close-ups of stuff that you would only have glimpsed at if you had been watching the movies. So if you're a fan of the films like I am, this is a real treat because you get a chance to actually look at some of this stuff that you would really only see in passing. So let's let's talk about this. So how did this book come about before we, we talk about the tech itself? Yeah, I mean, so this book, um, probably about, uh, this time last year, what happened was, uh, I, uh, I'm a big Ghostbusters nerd. I, I do a, a fan podcast called the Interdimensional Crossrip, and that's a weekly show. And, you know, I've, I've run a, a fan website since 1996 now. So, uh, Ghostbusters certainly in, in terms of my adult life has really continued to resonate, uh, as it did back when, you know, I was a kid and I was running around with my Kenner proton pack and, and trap and everything. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of carried through. So I'd kind of been steeped in the lore and with the new movie that came out, had really gotten in touch with the good, the good folks at Ghost Core, which is Ivan Reitman's, uh, production company. And, uh, you know, they, when the new movie came out, they were doing a lot of events. Uh, I had worked with them and, and kind of consulted on some stuff and done some, you know, live shows and, and things to help them promote the movie. And, uh, you know, on the side, I also, I write books for Marvel. I've been writing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Declassified and, and several of these, you know, big, uh, collector's books, these big hardcovers. And so, you know, just in casual conversation, I was talking with them and I said, you know, I really, I've always wanted to do, you know, like a, like a technical manual or like a visual history guide or, you know, something because there's so many cool, there's so much cool gear in the, in the films and there's, all of these little nuanced parts that places like Ghostbusters fans, the website where prop uh, replica builders, they just pour over every single detail and try to figure out what is that little knob? What is that little like elbow that's on there? I, I, I want to find that original part and I want to source that so that my 
my proton pack is as accurate as humanly possible. And so I said, we got to, we got to do like an official like reference manual for everybody. We have to put something together that if you are building your proton pack replica or your, your replica ectomobile, this is your guide. This is your, your Bible, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was the, sort of the, the stroking of the chins and the, you know, Eric uh, Reich, who's the great associate producer there, he kind of goes, hmm, yeah, I like that idea. Unbeknownst to me, they had already been talking with Inside Editions <laughs> about doing something like that, and they were looking for an author. So, um, again, like every good Hollywood story, it's right place, right time, and just happening happening to say the right things, I guess. So, uh, so last fall, uh, they said, oh, we're doing this. It's it's not a it's not a visual history guide. It's more of a like a technical manual. You know, like the the Haynes manuals that you get at the workshops. You know, you go to an auto parts store and they have one for every car. How do you rebuild your carburetor? How do you change out your tires? That kind of thing. I said, oh my god, that's such a great idea. It would be great to kind of incorporate like make that a technical manual. Like I don't know, I Star Star Trek: The Next Generation, even the uh, classic Star Trek. They've always had these great technical manuals where. How does a phaser work? How do you operate a phaser? How do you operate a transporter? How long does it take uh, you to climb through a Jeffries tube? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and how long did they build those Jeffries tubes on the set? Not yeah. that long, like right. one section. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so that kind of began the conversations uh, with both Sony Publishing and and Ghost Core and and Inside Editions as to what is this book? What are we going to do? How do we make this interesting? You know, for for the diehard fans who already know a lot of this information, for the casual fans who are going to be walking by, you know, at their local Barnes and Noble or whatever, and and they say, oh, Ghostbusters Ectomobile Manual, and they pick it up and they go, whoop, nope, too nerdy, putting that down. You know, no, we want you to, we want you to be engaged. We want you to, uh, you know, have have something there that's entertaining for you too. So that was uh, it was a very short conversation because they had a very, as many things do, they had a very short production schedule and they needed something right away. So. Uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it came about. And the, the tone of this, for those who want to know, it's written as if it is in the Ghostbusters universe. It, it talks about all the different equipment and, uh, it does, you know, you do refer to the, the items in our world that have been repurposed and tweaked within Ghostbusters. You know, Egon has made some, uh, changes to the, to the equipment or whatever it may be in order to make it work within the Ghostbusters world. But it does mean that you can actually look at this guide and see where many of these items originated. And uh, that's pretty cool, too. Also, it means that you've worked in some great little jokes uh, that are are provided by the various characters, often in little notes that are on like uh, post-it notes throughout the book. So you get the the commentary from the Ghostbusters themselves. And I also love I mean, we were chatting just before we started recording about how. And when I was younger, I played the Ghostbusters RPG a bit. And one of the elements of that, one of the big parts of that was this idea of Ghostbusters franchising. And they talk about that, obviously, in the first movie. They talk about the franchise uh, rights would make them millionaires. <laughs> and so this book also goes to that perspective as well. Like you, you're opening up your own Ghostbusters franchise. Well, here are some of the guidelines you should follow. And right, I, like, yeah. I, I like all of that. I love that there's that flavor in it. So I assume that since you were working from the get-go with uh with people very 
closely attached to the beloved movies themselves that you had a lot of uh, really great access to things like the production photos and and maybe some reference photos and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and beyond the photos, access to the actual cars themselves, you know, uh, people that were going by on the Sony studio tour would often uh, catch the unfortunate sight of my rear end and my feet uh, sticking out of the car because I was on the floor of the car trying to take a photo of the, the CB radio that's up on the ceiling and trying to figure out what model it was. And, uh, you know, it was it was it was a whole lot of fun to kind of dissect these cars and get in there and find all of those details but uh but yeah i mean it's it's interesting you you mentioned the tone and that was that was something that we struggled with because uh technical manuals uh, not inherently funny pieces of <laughs> literature so uh you know i one of the things that really appealed to me about this project was here's all these things that are on top of the car you know they've got the roof rack and there's all of these great uh um, you know, the accoutrement, he's got all of these, these gadgets and gack and stuff. What does it do? I have no idea. I've known Ghostbusters now for 30 plus years and I have no idea what any of this stuff does. Um, and so I, I dove into it and I started thinking of all the theoretical sciences and all of how things would work and how this component would tie to this component and what purpose they would serve. Um, but then you start losing the humor and you, I don't know, it starts getting, too technical. It starts getting too bogged down in the the lore and the technical jargon, uh, and so that's really where uh, my co-author Mark Sumerak, who worked on Proton uh, Proton Pack, see, it's all it's ingrained in me. Mm-hmm. Power Pack, the Marvel comic book, not the Nuclear Accelerator. Uh, he worked on Power Pack and Guardians of the Galaxy and and a lot of Marvel titles, and uh, so he came in and he did a, a really great comedy punch up and. And really helped me because I, I had put those sticky notes, those post-it notes all over the place. And, you know, he came in and, and did a really great comedy pass and making those just really shine. Um, so, yeah, tone tone was really difficult uh, because, you know, we, we can only say that you can destroy the world with a component so many times before you're like, OK, I got it. I'm on page 20 and you've said that this will blow everything up. I got it. That's not funny. What else you got in you? So, um, yeah, it was it was really, really tricky trying to find that right tone. Right. And of course, I mean, Ghostbusters, the film is brilliant in many ways. But one of the ways I love it is that the way they they produce that film, the way that film rolls out and and unfolds in front of the viewer, unless you're just a truly persnickety kind of of audience member, at least for that first viewing, you don't really start to question where did they get this equipment? How did they build it? How do you build a, a portable particle accelerator that can fit on your back and not crush you? Uh, How do you get the superconductive electromagnets cold enough to accelerate a particle at near the speed of light? I mean, there are all these little technical questions that if you were really thinking about it, you'd be like, well, but the movie... It doesn't that's not important, right? The 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 gear is fascinating because it really is cool to look at and it create they had great effects that went along with it and it makes you want to know more about it, but it's not important for the story. So for the purpose of the movie, you can just watch it and they can have a little casual line about something and they don't even have sure. to just they don't have to justify it as long as it works within the context of the story. And and that's perfectly fine, I find. I I, I like I like uh, hard science fiction, but I also like stuff that doesn't take the hard science fiction route as long as it as long as everything works for the story. So then 
So your job then is to come around and take the stuff that gets casual mention or sometimes no mention at all. It's just something that shows up on screen or it just happens to be part of the car that was never really meant to to get more than maybe a casual glance and you have to give it a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and you take a little bit of the mystery out of it, which is uh, for for those of us that pour over every detail, that's that's great, but then, you know, uh we, you and I were talking offline about lightsabers. You know, as as a kid you're like, "Oh man, a lightsaber is the coolest thing." But then you start thinking it like the magic sort of comes from you wondering how it works, what what's in there that's powering it. And then, of course, you read the books, and you know, it's kyber crystals and these are a long Jedi tradition and blah, 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 blah. And it sort of takes a little bit of the mystery out. Uh, so you have to be careful, too. You don't want to delude things to a point where, you know, there's not there's not a little room for interpretation, too, because that's what fans since 1984, since they saw this movie up on the big screen, have been, oh, how does that work? How how is the lightning shooting out of this gun right now? I don't understand uh, the, the reasoning or the the, the actual technical uh, reason behind it, but it looks cool, and they're catching ghosts with it, and that's all that matters. You can't you have to have that suspension of disbelief so that you keep moving forward, and you're able to believe that a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is walking down the streets of Manhattan. So yeah, it was it was it was kind of it was fun in a way to put on a certain hat and be like, well, why would they have this on top of the car and what would it be connected to? And for what purpose, you know, why would Egon and Ray have decked this car out with a missile guidance system? And you have to <laughs> sit and think of the like theoretical science behind it. That's probably a bad example. Cause we have a, a joke in there that they put that in there for when the EPA inspects them. Uh, they just want to freak them out by having a, a Tomahawk missile guidance system in there just to keep them on their toes. But um, you know, it's, it's tough. And but it's also a lot of fun because you can sort of reverse engineer uh, like the cross-section sensitivity analysis unit, which is on the top of the car made by Texas Instruments. And you go, well, that was that was used to to filter out radar data. You know, if, if you've got a radar sweep that's filtering things out because they're looking for ballistics missiles or incoming uh, aircraft, uh, it's it's sifting through that data and then giving you a refined result. Oh, they they could use that. Like, what if what if they had this PKE detection array that you've got every single human being on the planet has some sort of a soul or some sort of an essence that they're projecting? How do you weed out the ghosts from that? You know? Oh, and then things just like kind of slowly start being. You connect the dots between them all, and uh, that that was that was a lot of fun. That was it, it was like being a detective, a reverse engineering detective. Yeah, I, I liked it being the techno geek that I am. I loved reading about this and seeing that connectivity because seeing seeing you refer to gadgets and what they actually do in our real world and what they are for and then saying, all right, well, if we start from that premise, can we apply that by tweaking it a little bit? Let's say that someone has has uh, ascertained that ghosts have a particular uh uh, uh, quality to them that would we would need to separate the signal from the noise. How right. how could we take this thing and then tweak it? And we'll get to to the the negative spectral particles because that I think is br- <laughs> all right. Let me let me just say, Troy, if I may call you Troy. Of I, course, yeah. I am I am so thankful now to know why they are called proton packs because yes. 
because it makes so much sense in the mythology you've set up in this book. So, uh, uh, for yeah, I mean, a proton obviously is positively charged particle. It's also you could call it just a hydrogen ion because a hydrogen atom is a proton and an electron. If you strip the electron away, you now have right. a charged ion, thus a proton. This is what particle accelerators do. It's what uh, like the the Large Hadron Collider has has a a, a proton collider, and so. Having that, I, I had never even questioned why they were called proton packs ever. It just didn't <laughs> yeah. even occur. And you have the whole explanation of where the hydrogen gas is, which makes sense. You would have to strip the electrons from the hydrogen to create the protons. Thus, you have hydrogen ions and that you accelerate these. And then you just have a gun that's shooting these particles. And why would you use protons? So having ghosts have negatively charged particles makes it make so much sense. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and so you're you're sharing in the glee that I had when I was figuring all of this stuff out, and and thanks to uh, an MIT professor, uh, Dr. James Maxwell, who had done a lot of the research for the new 2016 movie, and had written a dissertation about all of this stuff, and he he sent me all of his research and let me go through it and and sort of translate it into layman's terms. So he had sort of started this path, and then again, I started putting the pieces together. Um, you know, how, if you're shooting a ghost with a proton pack and if it's comprised of negative, uh, electrons, why does it get tired? Oh, well, but it's being hit by positive energy. Of course it's going to be getting tired because it's decaying at a more, at a rapid rate. Um, and, and a lot of that was so fun again, getting into this. Now you can see why my editor was like, Troy, it's not funny enough. Like, what are you <laughs> doing, man? You're talking about this reads like a physics book, but it was so interesting and so exciting to me that it's it's hard not to get into it. Yeah, why why did they call it a proton pack? Why why does the ghost get contained in the trap and they can't get out? Like what what is it in the technology there that keeps them locked in? Um and and also how do they adapt that for bigger ghosts, for more powerful ghosts, for uh and and if it's exuding uh, radiation? How are they combating that? You know, there's a whole lot of those levels that were just so much fun to dive into. And like, you know, the reality of it is uh, Stephen Dane uh, and and John DeKira, the production designer on the film, they just went to Apex in, in Pasadena and grabbed all of this technical stuff that like NASA JPL or somebody had just tossed out into the garbage. And they're just grabbing stuff in there. Put that, oh, that looks cool. That's got some great lights. And oh, that looks like a great control panel. And they're, they're pulling and cludging all of this stuff together. They weren't thinking about. I mean, I'm sure in a certain sense, like Ron Cobb, they were thinking about how things work and, okay, that needs to control that thing. But they weren't thinking about this level of detail at that point. So oh, sure. it was it was cool to kind of help them now 30 years later and be like, oh, you did that on purpose. That's why that's there. You know? Right. And then they can they can sit back and say, well, yes, I did. When in reality, <laughs> exactly. it was just like this thing looks cool on top of this car. And uh, and, and ultimately, like, hell, oh, I, you know, subconsciously, I must have known that this was connected to sonar and therefore but with some gentle tweaking you could have it to listen for ghosts instead of you know for yeah, anything else yeah uh, yeah i like that uh, i mean i've been i have been known to claim credit for uh, brilliant deductions i have made without knowing about it <laughs> so so i am not above such things myself uh yeah i i found that really really entertaining to to dive into that it also i mean once you once you come down to that explanation where, you know, you, you think, well, if you're tackling something that's supernatural with science, you've got to find some scientific basis somewhere for, for the two to meet. 
right? Sure. You know, yeah. Otherwise, you you have uh, I fight your magic with science, and and ultimately you can't really <laughs> you can't really say anything useful then, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. but once you made that determination of all right, well, we're going to work from the the foundation of these ghosts having some some. Uh, spectral energy that has a negative charge to it. Uh, that's great because the word negative has so many different connotations. There's one right. con- yeah. one connotation in engineering or, or physics and a totally different one, obviously, if you're just using it as a regular adjective. And not only that, but it meant that you could uh, then explain other things that they talk about where they, they just casually mention the different classes of ghosts. And, sure. and then you think, well, now, now we have something quantifiable that we can measure. We can measure, say, the the uh, magnitude of a negative charge, and then the tools we use to detect these things suddenly become much more easy for us to explain from even just a theoretical technical point of view. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, and I I, I want to know some of your favorites too. But one of my, one <laughs> sure. of one of my favorites was were the uh, the goggles. And yes. Oh, yeah. Because you talk about how it provides a heads-up display or HUD for the PKE meter and that it gives you information. But you also – and I'm so glad you did it because I was thinking as I was reading the description, you point out how it's similar. In fact, it's based off of uh, night vision goggles. And the whole, the whole premise behind night vision is that it's taking light – that we as humans are incapable of seeing, you know, infrared light. We cannot, we cannot see that light. But it has, it takes that light, and then it has to use algorithms. Actually, it's using technology to convert that into light we can see, so that yeah. we can actually view stuff in darkness when otherwise we could not. It's kind of like what NASA uses with their telescopes. They use near infrared telescopes. They then you'll see on any NASA picture where they've used those telescopes, that they will indicate that they've used uh, various uh, uh, enhancements in order for us to be able to appreciate what is we're actually looking at. They're using right. various yeah. colors. And in the world of Ghostbusters, you explain that this technology has been tweaked to be able to view various uh, uh otherworldly supernatural creatures ranging from poltergeists all the way up to, you know, deities that <laughs> that uh, normally would be invisible. But this is because because it can interpret that data, it can then uh, project essentially an image that we could perceive ourselves. Right. And, I, and yeah. I thought that's so clever. I love that explanation because, again, it is based on something that really does exist out there. It's something that we've been using for decades now, and it's just that people don't necessarily think about. It. They just think, "Oh, when I put these goggles on, I can see in the dark." Yeah, yeah, and, and it makes a certain amount of sense that if you if you put yourself in the shoes of Egon Spangler, he's probably looking at technology that previously exists and wondering how he can adapt that to the needs that they have as quickly as they can. Because in the movie, their small business takes off quite literally overnight. So he has to go out and find, oh, oh, they're, they're these night vision goggles that have been decommissioned by by the army. I know that they have these sensor rods on them. If I just tweak the sensor rods, they won't be detecting infrared or heat or or heat signatures things like that they'll start detecting the decay of those negative electrons that are out there and we can we can sort of quantify that and visually put that into our ghostbusters eyes so that they can help track these things down totally but then the funny thing about this stuff and and even on those two particular pages in the book you find 
the, the designers of the film were just doing things because they looked cool, uh, because it, it made a certain amount of sense that like when he's looking around the ballroom, you know, the, the numbers in the, the corner are moving. And when they lock in, uh, on Slimer, it locks into a, a certain value. But what we found was as he's looking around the room, the value on the numbers is higher and then when he locks in on Slimer, the value on the numbers is lower. So we had to figure out this way, which it was totally counterintuitive. You know, why would – when he's looking around the, the room and it's at like 3,000, when he then finds Slimer and it's at 1,000, why, why does it become lower? And so we kind of had to help them with a little bit of a, a, a gap in their logic uh, or, or in, in the way that they had sort of defined things and say, oh, okay – the closer you get to zero, the more powerful the entity is. And that's, you know, if, if you are, if you see a zeroed out number in that corner, you're probably looking at the end of the world. You know, when they're at the, the, the temple rooftop looking at Gozer the Gozerian, if you were to throw those goggles on there, it would be a zero number or right. a negative number. Uh, and then when you get to Slimer, it's still fairly low. It's in the, you know, I think it's 1335, 1333. Oh shoot. I'm going to get killed on the forums. I think it's 1333 when they lock in uh, to Slimer. It is 1333.5. Yes. All right. Oh, man. I'm so glad you, you had that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah. So, so figuring out, okay, so the class, the classification system that they're defining these ghosts by, maybe that 13 uh, area is about a, a class four or a class five and kind of going from there and then building around that because that's the only number that we've defined in the context of the film. Of course, you watch the cartoons, there's all the, the cool gack and stuff in the cartoons, but it's a little different. So, you know, it's, it's finding, finding those little stepping stones and then building out from that. We know that Slimer is in the 1300 range. Let's say that, you know, something more like, I, I think what we ended up doing is like in the 500 range, that's like a class seven. Like that's, that's a, a, a huge uh, metaspector that is, uh, probably, uh, not the friendliest and, and probably, uh, doing some damage to you, uh, and then building out that chart from there. So we, we, we got a lot of proofreaders that came back on the book and they said, well, this doesn't make sense. Wouldn't zero be like normal zero? It should start at zero and it should go up. You know, that once you get to 5,000, that should be the biggest entity. And I was like, well, yeah, but we're, we're helping out the movie again here. <laughs> we're helping, helping them, uh, apply this this logic and and this sort of procedure to their stuff and so ho hopefully that communicates well and then also again like you were saying hopefully you know Ivan Reitman looks at this and he's like yeah that's that's what I intended the entire time yeah. yes of course <laughs> that's that's the intention all along well the nice thing is there is there is precedence in the world of science where someone has made a decision where the scale as it goes up is measuring an effect that goes down unless you are looking at the world at a topsy-turvy way. So, for example, Celsius, originally 100 was uh, freezing, and then you'd go up to zero to boiling. Right. So yeah. you look at that and you're thinking, are you just saying that, like, that, that you're saying it's less cold until it gets to very much not cold? <laughs> I mean, that, how, yeah, exactly. how does that make sense otherwise? Uh, or zero is just really hot, and then the higher you go, the colder it is? Are you thinking elevation? What? Where's your thinking in this, Celsius? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, so and yeah. That's, that's, that was, I'm glad you latched onto that, because that's, that was my, my simplistic, not scientific reasoning behind it was 100% is normal. 
everything is okay at 100%. And when you hit 0%, things are crazy. You are looking at the end of the world as you know it. That's that's how we we kind of went about it. So so since I was talking about my favorite being the goggles, do you have a particular piece of equipment that out of all of it is is your favorite? I mean, I know it's hard to say when you're working on each individual little piece, but yeah, I mean it's it is hard. I would say just on a at a 50,000 foot view, just getting to dive into the Ecto 1A from the second movie was a whole lot of fun because that was you know, the the second movie, they never showed the inside of the car uh, in the film. And of course, because they had the that Ecto-1A out at Universal Studios Florida, as kids, we would climb in there and we would see stuff and you'd see photos of, oh my God, there's a computer in there and there's all of this great equipment that you never see in the actual film that they don't do anything with in the actual film. So um, we... Uh, I, I may be divulging too much. Eric may be uh, ready with a sniper rifle here, but we we did dive into what is left of the Ecto-1A. They're in the process of hopefully restoring that car, uh, and I was able to just dive in and see, oh, my, that's that's a Trio-Tech centrifuge, and uh, that's, that's like a, a, a clock power controller and all of these tiny details that nobody's ever really seen because it's not photographed, it's not documented well. Um, and so we were able to pull those components out. And to me, it was like an archaeological dig, finding all of these, these things. And you'd, you'd pull out this, it looked like garbage and you'd go, Oh, that's this part of the, the big white pill looking cylinder that's on the back of the car. Um, so I think on a, on a, on a broad view that that's my favorite part of this book, but uh, if, if I were to pick one component, I would say it's the TU sniffer, um, uh, which, yes. uh, it has been long debated, uh, among fans as to what it's the thing that's on top of the original car that looks like a double barreled shot, a red double barreled shotgun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in a deleted scene from the movie, a cop is coming to write a ticket and put it on the windshield of the car. And that, that sniffer sort of turns and acts like eyeballs, like it's following the cop around and he can't quite dodge its its gaze. And we said, well, we could go with that. It could be like a, a sensor device if the car was paranormal or had some sort of, of you know, blues mobile uh, powers. But let's let's set that aside. And again, let's start thinking about how this would be useful to the Ghostbusters. Why would they put that on the car and what for what purposes? And uh, so finally getting to say what that particular piece of the, the roof rack was, was uh, a whole lot of fun. Um, and, and we do get a good joke in there about it looking like Egon's nose and that's why they called it a sniffer. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's probably the one because we, we're finally getting to define stuff that, that fans have, have wondered about for a long time and it's all ghost core approved. So, uh, it's canon guys. It's, <laughs> it's now. Such power, such amazing power you <laughs> I'm wield. drunk with power. Yes. And after you came from Marvel, did you not learn with great power comes great responsibility? No, I know, Ben. I know. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where it, and, and we were very careful. There were a few things in there where we didn't want to get too carried away. There's, uh, I, I think I've said it before, but there's a hose that's on the uniforms uh, where mm. if you if you look in the original film, they have these yellow hoses that kind of look like they go out from around the waist area, kind of down to about mid thigh uh, with with a little plug. And but unfortunately, and Harold Ramis has joked a whole lot about it. They made the hoses yellow. So everybody everybody's thinking, like, do they have catheters? What are they walking around with these hoses that kind of 
very conspicuously go from around the groin area down to this part that's by their knee and uh you know they've they've joked about well you know you you see stuff and sometimes things happen um <laughs> but so so we we thought about actually defining that and what it what its purpose was and uh, that that's one of those where i was like eric should we finally tell people what this is and he's like no nah, let's leave that one up to the imagination for a little while <laughs> that's all, that's amazing well one of the things i wanted to talk about was uh you know interesting stuff that that i think a lot of people don't necessarily realize especially because the the world of cars is so different today and that's you know when you talk about the ecto 1 and the fact that it's essentially it's a it's a type of Cadillac, but in that time, Cadillac would create these chassis that other car manufacturers, like specialized car manufacturers, would end up taking, and then they would make their own uh, models built on top of those basic chassis, which is why you could end up with several cars that look very different from one another, but they all are worked on the the same basic foundation. And, yeah, and and why this this 59 uh, millimeter is so difficult to find because they only made a certain amount of them, but other manufacturers made very similar looking cars, uh, you know, and and fans have similarly con- converted those into ectomobiles too. But yeah, yeah, the Miller Meteor car. I mean, it it has it because of Ghostbusters. It's so iconic. I think it's kind of like the DeLorean from Back to the Future. You see that vehicle, right. and you're and that's another great example of a car where there was. Uh, not on purpose, but there was a limited number of them. And, uh, it's, it's really neat to get a little bit of a look behind that because, you know, you don't typically see that kind of stuff now. You don't really see a car company creating a basic found, uh, you know, chassis that other companies are using to make other vehicles. Now you might find a car company that makes a chassis for their line of vehicles and then they build different bodies on top of it. But that's the kind of stuff you can find out with this book is you learn more about that basic technology that was used uh, in in the the film and uh, obviously learn more about the the uh, Ecto-1 from the new film as well. So which is, of course, a totally different car. It's, it's, sure. You know, yeah. Uh, so that was really cool. I also love the idea of uh, going into things like like the concept of plasma, plasma being the most plentiful of all the <laughs> the forms of 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 matter out there although you know most of us don't think of it that way because uh, we don't tend to run into a whole lot of it here on earth but yes absolutely you, you look at your nearby stars they're lousy with the stuff so uh <laughs> and of course that's ionized gas it's uh, it's a gas that actually can carry an electric current and i love that you talk about it being a plasma that comes out from the 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 wands of the proton packs uh because that also helps when you see the the lines of electricity going up and down. You think, oh well, of course, it's a it's an ionized gas. It can carry an electric current. That makes perfect sense. Right. That that's yeah, there. and it moves it moves in a wavelength like sound too. You know, so the because it's coming out with such force that you've got that wave pattern that is is happening. And 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 getting to explain why everything is the way that it is that that was a whole lot of fun. And and that's that's one of the things that is still rooted in. The original research that Michael C. Gross did for the film, uh, and he was very detailed because they had to, when they were animating things, come up with that logic that, okay, it originates at, at, at the ghost or at the wall or the bar or whatever they end up hitting with this, this particle thrower. Um, and so you, you can watch if you step through frame by frame, you see the, the light beam start on where it ends. 
and then go back to the emitter. So it's, it's like a bolt of lightning. You, you see it hit the ground first and, and go up back into the sky kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's all there. Everything, all of the breadcrumbs were left for us. It was just kind of putting the pieces together and, you know, well, it's an ionized gas, it's plasma and it's, it's being based in hydrogen and, and trying to figure out all of, all of the technical details behind it was, was a lot of fun. Yeah, I very much appreciate all of that. As I was reading it, I just kept thinking like it's so nice to see something that is is referring enough to the tech and science that we really know that people who are interested in recreating the uh the effects by going out and finding as many similar objects out there as possible in order to make their own ecto-1 or to make their own proton pack. That's interesting. But it's also cool that it can introduce people into realms of science that perhaps they didn't know they were interested in. And then they can legitimately start to learn more about physics. They can learn more uh, about particle physics in particular, about electromagnetism. Uh, and even like some of the equipment, you have like sonar detectors, radar detectors. It's amazing that they were able to get hold of all that that junked equipment because <laughs> some of the stuff is like, I mean, some of it was, was pretty top secret military stuff back in the day. I mean, and like, it's just sitting in a junkyard in 1983 when they're doing pre-production. Like, well, yeah, this was kind of scary that you could just go <laughs> to any place and pick this stuff up. But yeah, sure. Like, yeah, you know, 20 years ago, you wouldn't be allowed to know what this was. And now here it is just laying around <laughs> right next to a whole bunch exactly. of copies of, of the Atari 2600 ET, the Ele extraterrestrial. It's right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's your Tomahawk missile guidance system. Next <laughs> to ET cartridges. Yeah. Oh, what a world we live in. Uh, so, <laughs> exploring this and and going through this experience i'm sure it was really a, a rewarding uh, experience for you and uh, and we know we've talked about some of the favorite stuff were there any things in particular that you found a real challenge while you were researching and trying to figure out like all right how do i how do i make this fit for instance i i would say that one of the ones that would have jumped out at me you have an illustration of some sonar canisters and if i had seen right. that immediately i would have thought well what the heck am i going to do with these things yeah yeah i mean uh there's there's a a naval sonobuoy uh that's and and Star Trek fans will notice it because it, it used to be the proton torpedoes that they would use in uh, I think all the way through Next Generation. You still see them in some of the cargo bays in Next Generation. Mm -hmm. But uh, so so that that exterior case is something that they would use just as as cargo around uh, the ships and things like that. And my guess is that on on Ghostbusters two. They uh, happened to go to whoever sourced those to Star Trek about that time. It was 89, so it makes sense they were working on – I think that was Star Trek V at that point. And again, you do – you see these in those films. Um, so they probably – oh, that looks futuristic. We're going to put that on the side of the car. It looks a whole lot more futuristic than – you know, in the first movie, they've got these storage tubes that you see on plumbers' uh, vans. And so they swapped one of those out with this, this Sona buoy. And I had to, I had to think, why, what, <laughs> for what purpose? And and knowing that what's in there is a sonar, a, a buoy that they would use in submarines and things like that. Well, why, why would they use that? But then again, kind of reverse engineering and 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 thinking, like one of the biggest differentiations between the Ecto One A and the Ecto One from the original film was the digital age. They moved from analog to digital. So you see a satellite dish on the top. You see a personal computer inside the car. 
Um, so, oh, they're, they're upgrading things. They're going through the components that are on the car. And if you look at things that are missing, you can think, oh, they replaced something on the original car with this Sona buoy. And then I had to go uh, to the library and figure out what these buoys did and what they used them for and, uh, again, kind of start to reverse engineer that as to why Egon Spangler would build that into his PKU detection array. Uh, but it, it ended up working out pretty well. But that that was a, a tricky one. Um, and also, you know, getting uh, Ian Morris, who was the illustrator, and he he's awesome. He works uh, – <laughs> he, he is actually a Haynes manual uh, illustrator by trade. So he's he's actually diving into the real cars, doing the engines, doing the cutaways – um, and so it was a lot of fun working with him saying, oh, no, Ian, you, there's a wall there. You can't you can't build this electromagnet around there because there's a cartridge and there's a wall. And he goes, oh, I didn't know that. All right. Great. Thanks, mate. And he would kind of like t- revise things. Um, so I would send Ian this uh, just reference of, OK, here's the deal. There's this thing on the car on the outside and it looks like this. But what we want to do is illustrate what's inside and it looks like this. You don't have reference for that. Let me help you. And he goes, wait, so there's a thing inside a thing here? I don't – Troy, you're crazy. I don't I don't understand this. And so I'd have to say like, oh, no, OK, look. That is the weatherproof container that the buoy goes in. It's like when you go uh, when you go to the mountains and you've got skis but you've got to get on an airplane, you put your skis into one of those hard clamshell cases that's what this is. Why they did that on the car? Um, maybe it's not waterproof. Yeah, that's the ticket. It's not waterproof, <laughs> even though it's an underwater buoy. Don't worry about it. We'll figure that out later. But so that I'm trying to help him kind of figure things out too. Uh, so that that was that was also a challenge, you know, having to describe what's in your head to an illustrator and uh, and and a technical illustrator at that. So it had sure. to make sense. It had to be put together. It couldn't just be like. You know, it's a it's a circle. You know, for kids, uh, it, I just, there was just no way to to communicate that to him. You had to tell him exact details. I appreciate your Hudsucker proxy reference. <laughs> you know, for kids, big Cohen Brothers fan here. <laughs> so, uh, well, I, I can completely appreciate that. Uh, my father is an author, and he has written uh, extensively in science fiction, and has worked with illustrators as well. And so he has told me stories that are very similar. He's also, he's actually written for Star Trek. So, oh, nice. uh, yeah, so I, I've, I've lived through this, my, my life as well. I've seen it from that side. So it's cool to talk to someone else who also has had these experiences. It's really, it's really interesting to learn about it from Ghostbusters because that's a property that I love, but I've never had any other connection to apart from yeah. just being, being a, a fan of it. Um, I, I also think that it works really well within the context. This kind of gets into film critiquing, which is not what this episode is sure. about, but I don't care. Uh, so <laughs> it's my show. Um, I, I think it also works. Something that serves you well as the author is that in the film, the Ghostbusters are essentially they're exterminators, right? They're not, you know, they're scientists and they're the Egon in particular is a brilliant engineer, but they are, they, it comes down that they are, they are ghost exterminators or Ghostbusters. Yeah. And, yeah. and as such, one, it gives you a little license for things to be a little, you know, jerry rigged and janky because they're, they're, glorified exterminators. And two, it does make sense that you would have people say, well, let's repurpose technology because one, I don't have the access to a lab where I'm going to be able to do the R&D and the production and the manufacturing of all of these pieces of equipment we need. 
And B, that would be way too expensive anyway. Let's buy stuff that's <laughs> yeah. cheap and then we'll just change it. Like from from a movie, like within the universe of Ghostbusters, it makes sense because you're talking again about a small business. They they you know put all the mortgages on to raise house in order to, to afford starting yeah. it. And they don't have the money to build particle accelerators with brand yeah, new stuff. I mean, it's, it's all found. I mean, you look at, they, they throw this device on Lewis Tully's head and it's a colander, you know, yes. it's a colander with a bunch of electrodes and wires and stuff hanging out of it. And it makes sense because it's just stuff they found and they know that it's a conductive material. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's one of the things that the new movie I think got right was, you know, Jillian Holtzman is a dumpster diver. She goes in and she finds these lead pipes and she wants to turn them into proton shotguns. That's that's the the spirit uh, essentially of what the first film was. It's this found garbage that people have thrown away that they've turned into treasure. Yeah. And I like that also when we get into the uh, the later films, I like that they were thinking about how they would update the technology, as you pointed out, between Ghostbusters 1 and Ghostbusters 2, they went from analog to more digital. They had computers. Right. They, and so the design of things started to change a little bit, not so dramatically that it's no longer recognizable as Ghostbusters, but it has changed. Whereas – and then we get into the, the the latest film where you start getting the printed circuit board as a more uh, important motif in some right. of the elements. Yeah. And, and of course, obviously – Circuit boards, transistors that transformed electronics. It's something that has allowed for miniaturization. And in the context of the film, you get to see the different uh, variations of the proton packs. And with the the last one being the most compact and uh, at least uh, according to canon, the lightest of the three. Yeah, yeah, the evolution of technology. Yeah, yeah. So it's great to see that reflected as well within the mythology of the world. It's. It's nice to see something that's consist- consistent with the way the world actually works, you know, and it's not just, oh, well, this looks cool. We don't have to worry about justifying it. It actually, right. it actually works logically as well. Uh, also, if, if just an aside, I really dug the fact that, uh, the different variations of the proton packs in the latest film had, uh, special code names. <laughs> that that, they re- did. that they relate did. relate to a particular author, but I don't want to give it away <laughs> for people who want to get the book and find out who it is for themselves. I will say it is very appropriately Halloween themed. It is. It's very appropriate. And then we also got another great joke in there uh, from the scientist of the group saying that they wish they had been named after more, you know, highly esteemed scientific minds. But, uh, you know, yep. it's, that, that's that's one of my favorite little again, the little things that you kind of put in there. To, to add a little bit of levity to it because it is uh, – we're talking about the evolution of these packs uh, and, and the miniaturization of the technology. But you also want to add a little bit of that that special sauce in there that makes it kind of amusing and fun. And, oh, that's right. It, it's a techno, technical manual, but I'm having fun reading it and that's – that's one of those things that's in there. Yeah. 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 I like it a lot. I mean, I, I've also read through technical manuals for things like the Star Trek universe and those are really interesting too, especially the ones, the, the, the gadgets that are dependent upon, uh, very theoretical science, things like nanotechnology that, that right. we're, yeah. we're still in the infancy for most of that stuff. And we really don't know if we're ever going to get those nanobot style, uh, uh, 
at atomic assemblers that will be able to build <laughs> stuff out of raw material the way if only yeah because yeah. yeah once you get the replicator it's game over right you've you've you're at a uh, post scarcity environment yeah I'm good yeah, yeah. I want that replicator I, I need my Earl Grey tea yeah. yeah hot I do want that yes same here but uh, it was it was fun to see that and again see it within the voice of the world like there, there are little bits and pieces where you can hear like this is this is Ray's kind of way of communicating this or, or this is how they would have written the workshop manual because there's just a little bit of a reverence there but it's 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 subtle it's not like beating you over the head with it yeah it, so, yeah so that's what I also appreciate was that it had that tone because you, you make a good point you have to walk that fine line you can't go super zany because if you do then you're not really saying anything useful but if you go total technical manual it's so dry that only the hard the hardest of the hard cores yeah are gonna want yeah it. oh my god i mean I'm, I'm so glad to hear you saying this because you're, you're one of the first people that's seen it and been able to be analytical about it in this way and again the tone on the book was one of the the hardest things to struggle with and i had i had done a a draft i don't even think i made it through a full draft um, that was more from like Peter Venkman's kind of snarky, you know, uh, the, the trademark Bill Murray wit, uh, where, you know, he was making quips and it was, it, it just didn't read correctly yeah, and where it felt too about cynical. All the, how all the different types of equipment can get you girls, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and it made more sense to let him sort of chime in and get the one-liners, uh, you know, the, in in true Bill Murray fashion, he tries to get the last word in, um, and then so then we move to a more terse kind of Egon Spangler um, uh, voice for the for just for the main for the meat of the book, and it just it's too technical, you know, it's too you get you get too wound up in things, and he starts going into these technical jargon uh, paragraphs that are dense, and it's not a whole lot of fun to read. But what what I found was writing from Ray's point of view. Um, you know, where he's so, he's so enthusiastic about everything and everything is just very endearing. He loves the fact that this piece of technology is in his car and he wants to tell you why. Um, and, and that once, once we sort of like tuned into that frequency, that's when the book uh, started coming together because it made a whole lot of sense. This is Ray stance and he's got an intro in the beginning because we, we wanted to make sure that everybody knew like he's, he's super proud of this book. He's proud of all of the equipment that they are licensing out to all of these franchisees um and and then hopefully your enthusiasm it's hopefully it's infectious hopefully as you're reading it you're like oh oh that's really cool oh that makes a whole lot of sense oh that's so funny why why they did that now i know and and i'm hoping that that little bit of you know this is great we we got to stay here i'm gonna go get my stuff like i want that same sort of enthusiasm to be conveyed through the book so I'm I'm breathing a very heavy sigh of relief hearing <laughs> say all of these things, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, I, I think anyone who has that level of, of fandom for Ghostbusters and they really want to have this, you know, we've seen lots of, of uh, supplemental materials that go toward the supernatural side of the things. But to go to something where you're looking at the tech side – and it, it's not just being explained away as, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially magic, but we're giving it a scientific name. It's, right. it's really yeah. cool to see that. Cause I mean, there is a lot of science and I'm not taking away from science fiction authors who do this because again, if the story is the most important thing, that's really what I care about. But, uh, it is really easy to write a thingamajigger and say, this is the, you know, 
Now, you do do what Futurama did. You just take whatever <laughs> the thing does and then you put an er at the end of the name of it. Right. And yeah. that's what it is, a thing longener. And then that's the thing. Uh, you could do that. So I appreciate that this is uh, it, taking that extra step. I also am very eager to show this book off to uh, – we have a, a a car expert here at the office who loves – he loves to talk about movie cars uh, in particular. Oh, excellent. And so I think he's really going to be thrilled. I haven't shown it to him yet because I wanted to all for myself until we had this interview. But, uh, <laughs> of course. But then I will show it off to him because I think he's really going to dig it. That's Scott Benjamin. So he's he's a huge uh, uh, car buff and, and knows – Far more than I ever will about vehicles. Yeah, so he'll be very excited. Hopefully he approves. Because that was the other thing too is, you know, there is a page that we talk about the tires, the engine oil, uh, maintenance, things like that, um, which it's all true. I mean, again, my goal of every uh, Ghostbusters fan that has their own Ectomobile replica, I want this in their glove box because it's all real. This is, this is, that's what your tire pressure needs to be. Uh, This is when you need to check your oil. it's it hopefully knock on my desk here. Uh, hopefully it's all uh, completely technologically proof that you can go in there and oh yeah the 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 tires need to be at thirty psi and and things like that. Um, so th- again, uh, going back to tone being such a difficult thing on this, I wanted car enthusiasts to have something in here, and that's kind of the reason we went into the history of the Miller Meteor and talking about those chassis. Uh, uh, builds that they would do and and even going in and describing you know the difference between Miller Meteor made three different coaches the Landau the Futura and the Sentinel and helping people that that don't really know the difference between those three you know hopefully when you see a car out on the road or you go to a car show you can look now at a car and be like oh that's a Futura and here's why um so yeah getting getting the Getting the the car and driver crowd interested in this too was was a big challenge because uh, I'm I'm not a big car guy. Uh, my dad taught me how to change my oil and change my tires, and that's about all that I can do. Uh, but you know, especially after working on this book, I have such a great respect, and I love the classic car enthusiasts now because they keep these machines from the the 50s and the 60s uh still running and still uh, pristine in their original conditions and it's hard work especially when they're not making these replacement parts anymore they've got to keep these things fine-tuned so uh I, I i can't call myself a car guy but i feel like i am a car guy after this like i i know how this car works i feel like i can tell you i feel like i can help you do some maintenance on it and that and that's kind of the goal i want you guys to read it and think that you can do maintenance on the ectomobile well, I, I think it's great because I was telling a friend of mine that I was going to have this conversation with you. And the first thing she asked me, and I am not making this up, was what's the tire pressure for the Ecto-1? <laughs> I said, I can actually tell you that because it's As, in yep. the beginning of the book. <laughs> page 18. It's right there on page 18. Yeah. So I was like – I said, I've got that detail. She was even asking me like, so, so are the tires the same in Ecto-1 and Ecto-1A? I'm like, no, they are not. <laughs> and let me tell you why because, yeah, that's, that's explained in the book too. We, Why did the white wall tires go away? Well, we explain that. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean it, it is – it's very much a car manual. It uh, – it's funny. It's a technical manual. It's an entertaining book for Ghostbusters fans. It's a car manual. Um, it's a reference book for people that need to uh, have something to look at when they're doing prop replica replicas. So kind of like the shield books that I'm doing, it has to serve so many different purposes. And then 
having to hit a page count makes it really difficult because one of the jokes that I wanted to put in there was at the very back of the book, every car manual has those blank pages with the lines for you to, to mark down all of your maintenance. Um, I, I wanted to, and was unsuccessful in pitching have two or three pages in the back that had those lines, but then had handwritten notes of, uh, you know, a, a paranormal specter spit ectoplasmic, uh, goo at the siren, uh, stripped all of the chrome away from it, uh, replaced chrome with uh, spray paint until further chrome is available. You know, that like putting those things down there that I thought would be a whole lot of fun for fans to like, oh, what would, what would a maintenance log on an ectomobile look like? You what, know, what, what are, what are what, the terrible things that happened to them that they had to deal with? The, the wear and tear, um, the wear and tear on that car would be very different from your average vehicle. Yes. It would. Yeah. So the good news is a lot of that trickled into the actual, um, the, the pages of the actual text because, you know, there's a, a sound replicator on the original car. Um, and we surmised, okay, that because this, the, the car has such a distinctive siren, that's what feeds, uh, this, the federal siren that's on the front of the car. But then I also wanted to put something in there about the Jersey devil, which we know has an affinity for certain sounds and they can have the Jersey devil be uh, chased out of town because it's drawn to the sound and it's, it's following it. So, uh, you know, we, we worked that in there. That was something that was originally in the handwritten notes in the back of the book and, and kind of got worked into the text, but yeah, it was tough. And, and we had a whole lot of stuff on the firehouse that uh, just got cut for space. Um, so there, uh, to sequel, maybe, yeah. I don't know, do a <laughs> yeah. second book. I mean, you know, I, the, the, the potential for the whole franchise stuff. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you could cover. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, you know, we talked about how in the, in the, you know, before we start recording about the uh, RPG, the beauty of that is, of course, you know, whenever you're making any kind of role playing game, you have to build out you have to build out the world sort of as you have done. Uh, usually people take less of a technical mind toward that. You know, it's it, they want to make stuff that's going to be uh, great for gameplay purposes, but it doesn't necessarily have to reflect the real world. Uh, in fact, it really doesn't have to reflect the real world at all. But uh, the problem, of course, with that is that, you know, those explanations aren't really, you know, they're not confirmed anywhere else. It's not like they're canon. So you might be able to use that as inspiration and jumping off point, but it could very well be that you look at it and you think, well, that's not going to fit with everything else. So I can't really adopt that, yeah. that approach. Yeah. I mean, and it's tough, you know, the, the, the role-playing games, the, the GBI role-playing games, that was a, a whole lot of fun to go into those and just sort of use those as inspiration for tone and content. And, um, because I, I, I loved and adored those as well. And I still have, uh, uh, my, my podcast co-host Chris Stewart was kind enough to send me some of the expansion books that I didn't have too. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm kind of diving back into it, but um, but you know, I, yeah. And, and the cartoon, because there were uh, hundred and seven, a whole lot of episodes of the cartoon. Um, but all of the gear was used mainly as like a deus ex machina to all of a sudden there would be a, a gyrocopter that came out of the car and you'd be like, what, how did that get yeah. there? Or, you know, the, the storage tube would sort of unfold and become a, a chair that they could sit on kind of, uh, you know, suicide gunner style. And he'd go, Oh, that's cool. But that doesn't make any practical sense. I, right. Why would you do that? It just um, obviously it inhabits the same universe as, as inspector gadget. It, it really does. It really does. And, but it makes sense for a Saturday morning cartoon that they had to have all of these things 
that would progress the plot, that would be more toy toyetic so that they could add it onto the Kenner toys. Um, so we, we didn't really draw too much, save for a couple of things. There are some nods to, um, one of my favorite real Ghostbusters vehicles, uh, the, the Ecto-2. There's, there's a little bit in there, uh, about that. Um, but yeah, we, we tried to steer away from, because you, again, you can just get so caught up in trying to figure out, well, oh, in this episode, it does this, but then in this episode, it does something totally different. So we kind of had to stick more towards the movies. Um, and, and the role playing games were, were kind of the same way. You know, the role playing games were written, uh, before cell, cellular technology, before personal computers, before all of the stuff that I know. Uh, like the Ghostbusters Resurrection guys, they've rewritten all of the rules and they've rewritten all of the uh, character sheets because well, you need to have more challenges. You're living in a modern world. You can't go back to the 80s as much fun as it is to be nostalgic about that time. You want to have more challenges, more modern day challenges. So, yeah, yeah well, it was it was tough. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it also from an audience perspective, obviously, you, you want to aim for the widest audience you can so that they can appreciate it. And if you, if you start including stuff from further afield from the movies, then you, then you right. start, you start losing people because yeah. fewer and fewer of them have any experience with that particular material. Right. So, yeah. so yeah. you start with the films because those are the, I, I would argue that I'm pretty sure those are the, the versions of the Ghostbusters that most people have encountered. Uh, and then that number starts to drop off when you start looking like the cartoons probably is the next biggest. And then I would argue our, the role playing games and the video games, video games yeah, are probably cross section uh, gets smaller and yeah. smaller. And yeah, whereas all that material is still out there. So there's no reason why people can't go out and also enjoy that. I mean, the role playing game stuff, a lot of that is out of print. So that might end up looking for, you know, stuff that in used game stores and things like that. But, uh, you know, the video games, the computer games and stuff, those are still out there as well. So there's, there's plenty for fans to, to, uh, enjoy, but this in particular, I like, I, again, I love it that it's, that it's tied to our real world. I love that you have sourced as many of those gadgets as possible. So people can actually look into and see what they were really intended for. Uh, so I'm, I'm very appreciative of this. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that's, uh, and, and that was, uh, selfishly just because I wanted to know what every component is. And also, again, if you're out there and you happen to come across a 59, uh, Miller Meteor and you want to build your own replica, well, now you know that that's the, the spotlight that you need to get. And that's the dimensions of the storage tube that's on the side. Um, a, a lot of these things that we know fans have poured over details and, and the very last page of the book, uh, has a, a huge amount of special thanks to people because over the course of 30 some years, this book would not have been possible without those fans because they found the clippered valves. They found, uh, the Legree elbows. They, they sourced all of these things over the course of, you know, 30 some years where the internet actually helped crowdsourcing those parts and those components and, um, you know, being that we had to relatively write this in a short amount of time, I am so indebted to the, all of those fans because they did a whole lot of that legwork. This book would have taken another two or three years had not a, a lot of that stuff been done. So, um, but the good news is we're able to identify stuff that they haven't too. So when you pick this up, well, now you know that that's a pile siren and you know, uh, especially again on the Ecto 1A, here's all of those components with their exact model numbers, their exact makes, their exact dimensions. 
so even if you can't find it, you can probably recreate it. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, that's, I, I just hope that the, the level of detail comes through, uh, to, to everybody and everybody finds something different, uh, within the pages of the book that they enjoy. Yeah. I, I certainly think that there's, there's plenty for your, your Ghostbusters fans to pour through with this book. Troy Benjamin, thank you so much for joining my show. The book is Ghostbusters Ectomobile Owner's Workshop Manual. It really is a treat to look through this. So make sure you pick one up for the Ghostbusters fan in your life and you might want to get one for yourself too, because it's a really good read. Excellent. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks again to Troy Benjamin for joining us on this episode of Tech Stuff. I very much appreciate his time. It was a lot of fun exploring the world of Ghostbusters and, and kind of reverse engineering the 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 science of ghosts in this fictional universe. Uh, those who have listened to Tech Stuff for a long time, you guys know how I feel about the whole ghost hunting thing. So being able to talk about it from a standpoint of, all right, we're starting with this fictional world. How do we explain how this technology actually interacts with ghosts and then coming up with semi quasi scientific explanations actually is a lot of fun. So I very much enjoyed this conversation. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of tech stuff, tell you what, send me a message, write me an email, techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. You remember, you can watch me record this show live on Wednesdays and Fridays over at twitch.tv slash techstuff. And before I go, I have to wish you all a very happy Halloween. Hope you guys get lots of uh, nice uh, treats out there. Uh, I'll, I'll be going around dressed as... A Ghostbuster. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 